I love a good podcast, as you know, and I'm always happy to share resources for parents who are looking for creative, smart content that both entertains and offers enrichment for curious kids everywhere. So I'm happy to let you know about this awesome new show from the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, The Adventurous World of Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. The series explores themes that kids like ours love, like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and more. And episodes transport kids into iconic periods in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England. So cool. New episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, a perfect length for those car rides, for meal times, for break times, and bedtimes. What I love about this show is that it's kind of like listening to a book on tape. The story is captivating and includes lots of problems listeners can try to solve. The voice actors are fantastic, and the math concepts are seamlessly weaved into the narrative. It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. A kid who's been through a rough couple of years, a kid who has been bullied or left out at school, a kid who's had to maybe move schools because of social situations, a kid who has had people say unkind things about their difference or about their appearance or about other aspects of their identity. That's a kid who may be more vulnerable to a group or a a set of a way of thinking that's like, you're included and let us tell you all the reasons that other people are wrong for not understanding you and let us give you a role here. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reaver. So today is an important conversation about online communities and internet rabbit holes. And I felt pulled to tackle this topic for the show because I know that the past few years in particular has been a time where differently wired kids have been a spending a lot more time online and connecting with people they may not have even met in real life, and b engaged in their identity development largely online as a result of COVID. And I also know that this can put our kids and us as their parents and caregivers in challenging positions as we navigate a seemingly endless stream of discourse that may lead our kids down the wrong path. So. I asked my friend and screen and tech expert, Dr. Devorah Heitner, to join me for a frank and open conversation about all of it. We talked about the ways differently wired kids might be exposed to harmful content online and why our kids may be more susceptible to toxic or unhealthy virtual rabbit holes in the first place. We also talked about the popular places where teens and kids are hanging out the most right now online the way our kids' worldview and their brain development is impacted by the content they're engaging with, and what we parents might not know that we should know about this topic. This is the second time Devorah has been on the show, but in case you're new to her work, Devorah Heitner is the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World, and the upcoming book on navigating privacy and reputation with kids and teens called Growing Up in Public. 
She has a PhD in media technology and society from Northwestern University, and she writes regularly for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and CNN Opinion. And I just want to say up front, this can be a tough topic to explore, but I encourage you to listen and be open. I think it's so important that we understand what our kids may be doing online and feel informed and confident in order to talk to them about it in a way that supports their growth and development, their relationship with technology, and our connection with them together. Okay, and now without further ado, here is my conversation with Devorah. Hello, Devorah. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Debbie. It's so great to be here. Yeah, I was thinking we haven't been on a podcast together in years, although we just did our really cool big tech reset over the summer. But this is a different conversation, and I'm really curious and interested to get into it with you. But can you take a few minutes before we get started and just do your spiel for us? Tell us a little bit about who you are in the world and what you do. Of course, sure. So I am Devorah Heitner, and I wrote ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. And I just finished writing and will be out next year, Growing Up in Public. And that's about kids making their way in this world as surveilled as they are and as public as they are on social media and kind of navigating the searchability and reputation challenges and privacy challenges of being a young person today. I work with schools all over the country and the world, and I help parents especially understand their digital kids. Wow, you have that down. That is a very succinct and clear description of what you do. So thank you for that. And I just have to say to listeners that I have gotten a little bit of a behind the scenes look at growing up in public as Devorah's been working on it. And I'm really excited for this book. So I will, you're going to come back on when your book comes out, because I really want to get into that. I think it's fascinating. But I wanted to do something a little more specific for this conversation because of conversations I've had with so many parents and reading articles and knowing how vulnerable neurodivergent kids can be to certain communities online and knowing the toxic spaces that exist virtually right now, it feels really scary and daunting. And so maybe that's a place to start from your experience and what you know, with regards to the vulnerability of neurodivergent kids. Like, have you seen that? What is the research show? Or what have you found to be true in terms of these kids potentially being more prone to explore things online in a way that might not be healthy? I mean, it's really tricky, because you know, we know digital spaces can be areas of strength for folks who are differently wired. And we know that building community online has a lot of accessibility advantages, whether you're neurodiverse, whether you have any physical disabilities, like for so many people, connecting with people online has been a life-changing opportunity for all kinds of different reasons, whether it's the fact that you have a really niche interest and there's 10 people around the world, but they don't live where you do, whether it's because eye contact is a little bit uncomfortable, there might be all kinds of reasons. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of us, including you and me, right, Debbie, who know each other from the internet, but then have met in person. So there's also the fact that the internet and digital spaces are spaces where we can connect and that doesn't for you know foreclose the possibility of like an IRL relationship. So I think... That's really important. But but yeah, I think neurodivergent kids, differently wired young people can really 
fall into some tricky situations potentially. They can also, again, this can be an area of strength. They can make friends in a game that they play. They can have a leadership opportunity in, say, like a Discord server that they might not go for. Like they might not be the kid who wants to run for vice president of their junior class in high school, but they might be the kid who wants to be the moderator on a server, right? And so it's an opportunity, again, to step into leadership. I think what we worry about is the toxicity of some of these spaces and the negativity. And I think those fall into different categories. One thing that I wrote about a little bit for growing up in public is about sort of mental health discord and other mental health spaces and how if you're struggling with your mental health, the best place for you might not be like to spend hours and hours talking about mental health in a mental health discord server or on a mental health Reddit or in a mental health Quora. Like these might not be the most positive peers to engage in like for your recovery and you're moving forward. So that's like one set of problems. And then I think we've been talking a lot about the sort of political recruiting and especially for our kids who identify as boys and especially for kids who are white identified, like these are kids who the far right would love to find your white boy child or teenager and get them on board with some very intense thinking about women, about people of color, about immigration. And no matter where you fall, I think on the political spectrum, the idea of your kid being indoctrinated intensively by people online should concern you. I think it's more evident when it's really far from your own beliefs. But I think anytime our kids are getting out of context, kind of intense persuasion about how they should act or feel about other people outside of the context of real life, I think that should be concerning to us. Again, no matter where you fall on the political issues that are being discussed yourself, that's really tricky, I think, for a lot of parents to even understand how that's happening, right? Like, like where are they getting this and what is going on? Well, I actually want to ask you that. You mentioned Discord, you mentioned Reddit. So this isn't just Facebook, which I don't know many young people who are on Facebook anymore, I know that it's just not their place. It's the place for middle aged women like me and you but where are teens kind of hanging out and kids too hanging out online the most, maybe you could explain as part of that answer what those spaces are, because even Reddit discord, those might be words that people know about, but they may not truly understand what those spaces are. Sure. Well, a new Pew study found out, and I'll send you the link so you can include it in the notes, because I think this is really helpful. It shows where teenagers are, like as of very recently. And I think since the pandemic, we haven't known, like I've been kind of, as someone who researches this stuff, been like waiting for the data. So, okay, TikTok is a big place. And again, tic- when, when we talk about TikTok, like you could be on BookTok le- learning about YA novels. You could be on TikTok learning how to do your hair or how to clean your kitchen. You could also be on TikTok talking about mental health. You could also be on TikTok talking about all kinds of political issues, right? There's a huge range. And for everything that's perilous or concerning to us, there's something that's positive, right? So like for all we might worry about xenophobic TikTok, there's also anti-racist TikTok. For all we might worry about problematic gender messaging or like 
pro child abuse TikTok, like parenting advice that's about hitting kids or something really damaging and, and problematic. And there are those influencers on TikTok. There's also incredibly positive parenting advice and thoughtful stuff like our mutual friend, Ned Johnson, who's out there explaining really cool brain science on TikTok and helping adults and young people with ADHD understand themselves and all kinds of stuff. That's the thing about these spaces. So TikTok is a big place though, like 67%, I think is what the Pew study said. I'd have to look at it. 67% of teenagers are using TikTok. So that's a big number and it's the biggest. And then YouTube is also huge. And YouTube tends to be even younger because a lot of parents maybe don't allow kids on TikTok, but even schools will send your elementary schooler home with a YouTube video about how to do a science thing. And then before you know it, they're researching everything else. So many kids are on YouTube from toddler years on. And YouTube often will, someone will connect to another space. So one way that kids have told me they end up on Discord, for example, which is a server-based chat app that was initially popular with gamers and is now used for chatting about a lot of things, is there'll be a link in a YouTube comment. So someone will be like, oh, you want to continue this conversation about this kind of anime, come over to this Discord server. And so kids will start out maybe in one place on the internet, as we all do, like as I start out every morning in my inbox and end up by the end of the day, if I'm not careful and I'm not time boxing and doing all the strategies that I need to do as an adult with ADHD to like keep my time under control, I can also go down rabbit holes on the internet. I think they're different ones than the ones we worry about with teens. But that doesn't mean I actually need that TikTok about how to organize my refrigerator like right now. You know, like if my book is due at the end of the day, or if I have another deadline, or if I have to go pick up my kid, like I probably shouldn't be watching that video right now. So TikTok, YouTube, and Discord are big. And Discord, again, it's a voice chat app that a lot of gamers use when they're on the game. So if your kid is playing a game like Roblox or Minecraft, and you hear them talking to other people, and you hear voices in your home that are not the people who live in your house, they are possibly using Discord. They also very well might be on a Google Meet or using their phone with the speakerphone turned on. But when kids are talking to other people that don't live in their home and you can hear their voices, like that's what's going on. They're mediating that contact in one of those ways probably. And then I mentioned Reddit. Reddit is kind of this like online curated discussion forum. I mean, I am a little biased. <laughs> I'm a little anti-Reddit, I guess. I'm a little biased. Like I don't find it to be often a very positive place. I think one thing that we see on the internet is when you have the opportunity to be anonymous, you don't see people behaving in ways where they want to be accountable for. And this is something I tell kids when I go to schools and do workshops with students, I talk to them like, thankfully, this app is long, long gone. I don't think AskFM is popular anymore. But like seven to 10 years ago, there was an app, AskFM, that was all about teenagers connecting anonymously and just being cruel to one another, basically. Because when you remove the accountability of attaching your name to your actions... A huge motivation for that can be unkindness. Now, there are people for whom that be, begets altruism. We all know the anonymous, huge charitable gift is an example of altruism that's anonymous. But 99% of the time when people do not want their name or likeness attached to their actions, it is because they are up to no good. And I think as parents, we really don't want our kids to be in places where people are anonymous. So even though there are huge limitations to what's sort of like nice about Instagram or Facebook or other places, I think the fact that so often our likeness and our name is attached to our behavior is something of a checks and balances against being awful. So Reddit and Quora, which are online conversations that are chat-based, 
where people can ask questions anonymously. And, you know, there's like an ask me anything on Reddit and people be like, ask me anything. And again, some of those are really positive. Ask me anything about having a cognitively disabled sibling. Ask me anything about growing up in deaf culture. Ask me anything about living in Brooklyn. Like some of them are totally fine or innocuous or, or even like really good information. Like we live in a society where it might be hard to ask questions about someone's disability, for example. And and maybe this is a way that someone can ask a question that might be problematic to actually just like walk up to a person who identifies as deaf and like ask them a question like, what's that like for you? But if someone's putting themselves out there on Reddit and saying, ask me anything, that's an opportunity. And you can see where teenagers, especially neurodiverse teenagers might be really attracted to places where, especially if you have kids who've been told like, that's not socially appropriate, like you can't say that, where people are drawn to a situation where the rules are being explicitly like, yes, you can ask that, or this is a moderated conversation. This is the exact rules. And there's a lot that's attractive about that. Unfortunately, some of those conversations just don't go down a good road. So there's also a lot of very sexually explicit and sometimes violent conversations that happen on Quora and Reddit. Like there seems to be on Quora often like a big obsession with like going to prison. I don't know why, but I, every time I look at Quora, it's always like, I'm going to jail. What should I do first? And it was like all these warnings about sexual violence. I don't know if I'm just tuning into the wrong channel, like, but I'm seeing these things. And like, I wouldn't want my middle schooler reading that. If he wants to learn about issues around incarceration, I can think of like five books or graphic novels that would be healthier ways for him to learn about the problem of over-incarceration versus like reading a Quora thread. Because by the way, we don't know who that person is. Just like the person giving parenting advice on TikTok, like it could be someone highly qualified, like our buddy Ned or a bunch of other smart people on there. Like there's a lot of great authors on TikTok giving really good advice that's like research-based and thoughtful. And there's a lot of people who are like, I've got a phone, I'm turning it off. I'm pointing it toward my face and I'm going to tell you that it's okay to hit your kid or I'm going to tell you that it's okay to sometimes hit someone in a romantic relationship or like other terrible, damaging, problematic advice that we would never want our children to hear. We would never want to listen to ourselves. And so the wonderful and terrible thing about the internet is it's so democratizing. It's like everyone has a platform. That is terrifying. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. 
I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. What you just described, it seems like it's just too easy to access. Like you said, I wouldn't want my middle schooler to stumble upon this, but it seems like it's just one click away for so many of our kids. And I don't know if it is possible to set up some kind of controls around access for things like Reddit or other things in terms of even the type of content that they can find on there. Within those apps, it's pretty hard. I mean, there are ways to prevent kids from downloading apps, depending on what kind of phone you have and what kind of app store like, and there are ways you know, if you have an Apple, you can use screen time to some degree to like make sure that they have approval before they use the app store. But I even think those only go up to 13. Like a lot of the sort of assumptions that are built into tech are not really about keeping kids safe or what's developmentally appropriate, but about like, who is, who are you allowed to track for advertising? So the idea of 13 and up, it's not like, oh, 13 is exactly when I want my kid to access hardcore porn or exactly when I want them to be able to like buy weapons on the internet or something. But 13 is when the Apple folks think that you don't need to control the app store for your kid because that's when they're allowed to use more apps like Instagram, for example, or TikTok because they're being COPA compliant, which is just about advertising. But again, that's not to say that your specific kid should be on TikTok at 13 And then again, within TikTok, within Reddit, within Discord, there's huge variance on what's going on. So like a Discord that's a moderated Discord at the local public library for kids to play Dungeons and Dragons on and everyone has to use their library card to log in is going to be a really different kind of space. And it's not that your kid won't necessarily run into a troll or another kid in the community who isn't nice to them. Like it's a big, bad world. And even kids who who go to your same library could be unkind. But there's a huge level of accountability that, you know, that someone could get booted out of the group. If someone comes in and is spewing hate um, or using racial slurs, they're probably going to get booted out of that discord because it's moderated by a librarian who's checking it every day and that behavior won't be tolerated. And there's some consequences attached to acting in such a way. Whereas if you're looking at 
a sort of quote unquote regular discord where there's nobody in charge or there's not a clear moderator in a known community the way there would be with like a library moderated server. You're in a world where maybe anything goes or maybe maybe there's great moderation. But if the moderator is also a high school kid, is that moderator going to be on at 3 a.m. You know, to deal with the situation? Is that moderator going to be on during school hours? You kind of hope not. If, that, if, you, if your kid's the moderator, I kind of hope they're taking off from 8 to 2 to go to school or whatever. There's a lot that's one click away. And I think we need to just be in dialogue with our kids. And this stuff hits our kids' lives just as developmentally. They're pulling away from being in dialogue with us as much. Yeah. And I just want to mention for listeners too, you mentioned porn earlier, accessing porn. And I did do an episode with Amy Lang about that, actually two episodes about what to do if you suspect your child has stumbled upon porn, like how to navigate all of that. They're both really good conversations. So I'll include links in the show notes because I think that's one potential harm. I want to talk about the pros and the cons, right? But I'd like to start with what you think some of the other real dangers are here. We're coming off of a couple of years, right, of COVID where young people have spent probably more time online than they have in the past. Many may have been exploring their identity and really doing that self-discovery work much more plugged in online than they would have in the past. And so I'm just wondering what you can say about the way our kids worldview, their brain development is impacted by the way that they're engaging with potentially toxic content. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's really tricky. I mean, I think kids doing this identity work online, you know, need to be supported and need to need to have adults to kind of be a checks and balances in their life, you know, and the sort of early days of the internet, there was a lot of sort of fantasy about like, oh, we can all have different identities online. And this, you know, we're all these cyborgs. I mean, this is, you know, 20, 30 years ago, like even in the beginning of like, when I started my PhD program in media studies in 2001, there was still a lot of sort of idealization of like, the internet's going to be this incredible place. It's going to be like a feminist utopia, because we won't have bodies, we'll just have our brains. And instead... Instead, we get like violent pornography. And instead, we get all kinds of other things. And even for kids, for all the liberatory potential, say for like queer kids exploring their identities, I think there's a flip side of there's huge benefits to exploring identity in an IRL community too, and having that kind of support. And we know that that's not available to every kid. But it can be really challenging to figure out kind of who you are in terms of gender and sexuality, in terms of your political identity, in terms of how you identify in terms of being differently wired. All of these things are challenging because the internet wants to sort everyone into a category. The internet wants to be searchable. The internet wants a hashtag. And I think we all want our kids to be more than a hashtag. We want to be more like as an author and as someone who's like has a public presence, like thinks about things like branding. I also reject that. Like I'm just like public, you know, personal brand is BS. Like we should all be able to be complicated. And I think that's where the internet, at least the internet that I know, and these spaces I'm talking about, like TikTok and Discord kind of fall apart, because it's hard to be complicated and be searchable by a hashtag. And we want our kids to be able to be complicated, (laughs) and to be able to embrace their identities, and, and to be able to also evolve, not have to feel like they have to kind of label themselves to be found, and to find community, but that the best friends we have aren't always the friends just with the shared interest, they're the friends who really love us for who we are. And those relationships can grow even as interests and self-presentation and other things change. And I think I think it's really important that our kids experience that. So I probably lost the question. <laughs> no, I love that you went there. I think that you answered it. I was just asking if there's brain science that you're aware of about what is 
happening to our kids as they're developing their worldview, as their brains are actively, the prefrontal lobe is actively developing if they're also consuming potentially harmful content. Right. Well, we know that kids are, are very reward sensitive and teens are very reward sensitive and that, and that the newest brain research suggests that it's not that they can't predict consequences or that they're sort of dummies, like they can't see the you know, possibilities of, of, what, of harm that might come if they post certain things, for example, because they're actually very astute. A lot of times they can tell you like in terms of sexting, kids will be like, yes, I know sometimes you know, naked images get passed around but I still did it because I'm really in love. Like they can really identify that they know that that harm is possible, but they will still make the choice to do something that is risky because risk is activating. And this is all really positive for adolescents because we want them to try the hard calculus course or learn to skateboard or ask someone out for the first time. Like all of the developmental things they need to do are risky. And so it makes sense that they're going to be primed for risk, that they're going to be focused a little bit more on the rewards of a risky choice than the downsides, even though intellectually they actually do get the downsides. Again, they're, they're no dummies, <laughs> these kids. And that's really important. But extreme rhetoric is going to be very attractive to some kids. And especially the, the worry I think we have for our differently wired kids is that extreme rhetoric may be really attractive to those who have been left out, to those who have not been included, and to offer an explanation for that and to say that you haven't been included, but I I'm not only am I going to include you but I share your anger and frustration at being left out. And these are some people who it's their fault and you can externalize. I think all of us are prone to externalize. All of us are prone to being like, my keys aren't here. Who moved my keys? Like, I think all of us have had those moments of frustration and it's like, oh, I put my keys in the wrong place. But I think a kid who's been through a rough couple of years, a kid who has been bullied or left out at school, a kid who's had to maybe move schools because of social situations, a kid who has had people say unkind things about their difference or about their appearance or about other aspects of their identity, that's a kid who may be more vulnerable to a group or a a set of a way of thinking that's like, you're included and let us tell you all the reasons that other people are wrong for not understanding you and let us give you a role here. And I mean, this is what happened. Like I'm going to share or I'll share with you for the show notes, that article that I shared with you from 2019 in the Washingtonian about my 13 year old joined the alt-right. And in that case, there was sort of a happy ending, right? So this is an anonymous tale by a mother written about a kid in a progressive community who was treated poorly in a situation and felt really misunderstood and was kind of pushed out of his school situation and then was very attracted to these kind of Reddit spaces and became a leader. And this is what's really interesting because these are spaces that will give kids a leadership role very quickly. And that's very attractive to young people because the thing is young people are ready. And this is what we need to look for on the inclusive side, like why, why schools and communities and volunteer organizations need to, you know, say to 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds, like, yes, you can have a leadership, you know, position with a lot of autonomy and like, yes, 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 yes. Because these other organizations will do it and they'll make your kid feel really valued and really needed and that's what happened with her kid. For In that situation, her kid then went to a rally where the people that he'd been talking to online were quite hateful, um, acting quite hateful in public. And he recognized the dissonance between what he had thought was this loving, accepting group and the ways people were acting. And he was able to say, I need out. Like, this isn't right for me. It's scary that it got to that point. But I think that's, that's what was the wake up call. 
But I think it's really important to understand that anyone who's been excluded or left out is going to be especially vulnerable to someone who has an explanation for that and has someone to blame for that and also offers you a place where you're needed and wanted and encouraged. Yeah, I think that's the scariest part for a lot of our listeners whose kids may have been excluded, who have always felt like an outsider, like they didn't belong. And if they can find that sense of belonging, it can be, as you said, very attractive. And I'm also thinking about there are a lot of adults who went down rabbit holes and continue to go down QAnon and other rabbit holes. And so I imagine that there are parents who've been modeling this very same behavior of getting kind of sucked into this echo chamber. And so that must be even more challenging for kids who are in those households. The thing is, a certain amount of skepticism all the way up to a conspiracy theory is going to be very attractive to teenagers because teenagers are just at this moment where they're like, well, now I know about climate change. What else haven't you told me? Like, what else have you guys screwed up and left me to deal with? And like, to a certain degree, that feeling is justified. I think climate change is a good example. Like, I think if Gen Z kids are a little PO'd at the adults in their life to be like, oh, thanks. Like, we're supposed to solve this. Like, now that it's 110 degrees, that's legitimate, right? And there's a lot of things about adolescence where you start to really put together like, oh, these are the things that haven't. And that's why actually learning really critical history or books like Lies My Teacher Told Me, or there's some other really great books that are like critical histories of like, what didn't you know? Like, what didn't you know when you were a little kid celebrating Columbus Day or whatever are really attractive to teenagers because teenagers are ready to do that critical work. Um, My son's school is putting on Peter Pan and I'm like not happy about it, it, that this is a really problematic play with some very racist scenes. They won't even show the Disney version on Disney Channel anymore for the last two years. and. One of the things I've said to the teacher is I hope that this is an opportunity for the kids to grapple with this historical text because I think they're so ready, right? These eighth graders are going to be so ready to be like, let's look at the racism in this and how it's been staged in different places and what the critical response has been as opposed to just let's not do it, which might've been my first choice, but it's happening. So I'm like, okay, but I think they're so ready. The challenge is when they turn that sort of critical conspiracy vibe onto you and everything you or their other parent believes is a conspiracy. That's a problem. And so if your kid is going down a road of very problematic beliefs, I mean, like, not just like they're obsessed with anime and they want to make their hair hair look like anime and they want to dress like anime. And you're like, this isn't how I pictured my kid looking in ninth grade. Like I'm talking about something actually harmful, like, because I think it's really important that we don't fight, sweat the small stuff. You know what I mean? Like pick a different battle. But if it's really something that your kid is obsessed with, that is problematic, where they're getting in touch with people who are dangerous, where they're uh, espousing views that sound hateful, misogynist, right, et cetera, homophobic, like the xenophobic, like all of these then I think as many people in their life as you can enlist to get support that are not you, because developmentally, they are programmed to think that you're overprotective, you're wrong, you don't know anything. And that is just adolescence. But if their coach or their, you know, youth group leader or someone they trust is able to open up, like not go in and bash their beliefs, like head on, but kind of go from the side and like, ask them some questions that'll be some good information. First of all, are there any actual internal doubts? Like, is your kid really hook, line and sinker into this idea? Or are they curious about it, but also maybe doing it to piss you off? Like, that would be good to know, (laughs) etc. I mean, there's a lot of detailed information. I mean, if you need to like actually deprogram a kid from like a hate group, that's a different scenario. 
but there's many places a kid could be that would be concerning before they're actually leaving home to kind of enlist themselves in some kind of extremism and violence. Well, I really appreciate that advice to to get the support of other people, not just because this is an age where a lot of kids might be pushing back and not trusting you or you, they don't want to share those things and they would feel safer, but because this is also overwhelming for parents. So just to know that you're not in this alone, because I think if you feel that your child is going down this road, it can be scary and overwhelming because the internet is a big place. And the thought of our kids being exposed to things that would really run counter to the values that we have as a family, the child that we thought we had and that we knew, and it can just be very scary. So I love that advice. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. I wanted to ask you, I always love this question, like, what don't we know? We've been talking about certain things here, but what do parents not know about what's going on with our kids and the way that they're accessing content that we should know? I mean, I do think the the amount of talking kids are doing about mental health, if you're not aware of that, might be surprising. Like, kids are very open. And I think that's a boundary that in many ways... I'm going to say as a positive change that the young people are leading a change in our culture where talking about mental health is normalized. So think about Simone Biles, think about, you know, examples where someone has really come forward and been supported and think about how young people felt about Biles and like rallied around her and supported her. That's not to say your kid will necessarily get the same treatment like in their high school if they sort of come out about mental health stuff, but it's worth understanding that kids are changing those boundaries. That said, what if if you have a child who's struggling, especially with something like maybe depression, for example, or an eating disorder, 
you don't want them spending all their time online in the company of other people with that shared diagnosis kind of reinforcing it. I think that's also really important. So the openness, I think, is a good thing. The destigmatization is really good. And we want to make sure that kids who are really struggling, like if your kid has been an inpatient, if your kid is doing intensive outpatient therapy, like that's not a kid who should have tons and tons of online unstructured time to just be wherever. I would work, like say you had a kid coming home from the hospital, I would work with their team to figure out a safe re-entry plan for tech, um, including just managing the flood of getting back on tech if they had their phone sort of away taken away during this time. Because like, that's a really intense experience to come back to 3,000 texts or whatever if you have a kid who was really plugged in beforehand. And so, again, it's not to say that we want to remove all these sources of support and our kids may experience these, you know, mental health spaces or other connected spaces online. Again, maybe it's a Discord server, maybe it's a social media group they're on, maybe it's just a group text with their besties um, as really supportive. And that may be the case, but we still may want to help them balance that with some other pursuits. Again, especially if they are in crisis or coming out of crisis, I think for kids who are not in crisis and are kind of just weathering the ups and downs pretty well, you still want to make sure to be like helping them remember to unplug at night, making sure they get that habit of turning off devices at night and getting some sleep because that's so crucial for mental and physical health. And all of these things are so stimulating, like being in an intense conversation on a group text is stimulating. And so it's not what you need to be doing to three in the morning. Yeah. I've always talked about using brain science as a way in to help our kids understand themselves better, right? And so I'm always looking for resources that we could share or watch or read or view with our kids that would help them understand the actual brain science of what's going on so that they can feel like, oh, this isn't just my parent telling me to stop doing this because they think it's bad, but really have a deeper understanding of the harms or what's really going on, how they might be rewiring their brain. Do you have any favorite resources on this topic? There's actually a great YouTube by Daniel Siegel, uh, whose book Brainstorm is really great, but he has a really nice YouTube. I'll send you a link that's about five minutes that really talks about myelination and the process adolescents go through in coming of age and how this is a time to really focus on what you love because what you love is really getting reinforced in what you specialize in. So if you think about like, I love dance And I also love TikTok, but what do you want your brain to grow toward? (laughs) And some people might say that dance and TikTok go together, but hopefully the the response would be at least to balance those things, like that it wouldn't be all to the TikTok or, you know what I mean, that you'd want to balance your brain growth. And this is a time where the brain starts to specialize and he does a really nice job talking about it. And I think what I especially like is it's such a positive take on the changes of the teenage brain. And I think teenagers are very sensitive to being maligned and to the idea that this is like a negative time or that teen brains are only half formed. And there's a lot of that kind of talk, but, but I think it's really, so I think it's really good to counterbalance that. And the video is short and it's on YouTube. So it's very accessible. Like you can give your kid a great book on the brain, but only some of them will sit and read that. Yes, that's great. All right. So listeners, we'll have the links to that in the show notes as well. Before we say goodbye, Devorah, first of all, this has been fascinating. As always, I've taken pages of notes on this conversation. So there will be a lot of resources in the show notes and links for everything that that we brought up. But is there any last thoughts, last words of wisdom, best practices, something that you want to leave listeners with if this is something that they're either dealing with or are concerned about, want to prevent? Yeah, I think one of the other things to do is to not shame her kids if they ever get sucked into misinformation, because the misinformation campaigns are very sophisticated. And as you mentioned, a lot of adults have been sucked into some misinformation 
And so actually to acknowledge the times where maybe you felt like, oh, I shared that story on Twitter without really reading it. And later I realized I had shared misinformation and I was sort of stricken with the horror, you know, but really talk with kids about that so that they don't feel ashamed or like they can never backpedal. We don't want our kids to feel like I must double down because someone then otherwise I'm admitting I was wrong and that's shameful. We want to really let kids know that we've probably all shared something on the internet that we later are like, should I have shared that? Or should I have amplified that? And to really give kids a lot of credit for being discerning when they are being discerning as well. And anytime they come to you about anything, a friend just told me a story where her 14 year old came to her about some concerning information about a social gathering she was about to attend. And like the first thing she did, which is so great is just be like telling me with such great judgment, you have such great judgment that really helps me trust you, you know, and just really reaffirming for our kids when they do share with us. And if they open up to doubts, not be like, that's why I told you not to follow those websites, but to be like, yeah, it's really tough when People share misinformation in such a like sophisticated way. It can be really like draw you in, you know, and just get like give them that sympathy and respect as much as possible, as opposed to like head on confronting like, how could you be, you know, because no one wants to hear how could you be taken in by that or how, you know, because what they hear is how could you be so stupid? And we never want to be saying that to our kids. It's really important that we try to not approach it that way. Yeah, we can freak out privately later with our friends or with our partner and, but keep it cool in front of our kids. That's great advice. A hundred percent. And that just helps keep the conversation going and not shut it down. That's great. Wow. Super interesting. Thank you so much for everything that you shared. I know this is going to be very helpful for so many of our listeners. So thank you for that. And tell us where people can connect with you and tell us again, when your book growing up in public is going to be out to the world. So I'm at devorahheitner.com, D-E-V-O-R-A-H-H-E-I-T-N-E-R.com. And I'm on all the social places, Instagram and Twitter. And my book will be out next summer in August, 2023. So exciting. So listeners, I will have Devorah back to talk about that book. I've gotten a sneak peek behind the scenes and it's going to be great. And I'm excited for that. So thank you, Devorah. As always, a pleasure to chat with you and we'll see you on the show soon. Thank you. Take care, Debbie. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash parenting to learn more, or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. 
Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.